Hello, and welcome to The Worst Best Sellers, where sometimes we actually read good stuff. I'm Renata. And I'm Kate. And this is our book year in review, part two. Yay. So presumably you all already listened to part one, which was our favorite children's and young adult books of the year. But just in case, for some reason, you didn't, we'll go back over our rough guidelines for this little endeavor that we do. We do our top five favorites of in each category for the year. And this episode, part two, by the way, will be our favorite books for adults and our favorite graphic novel graphic novels and comics for any age and we'll do our top five favorites and then just one worst book of the year because that is kind of our brand Um, and when we say worst a lot of times that actually just means kind of least best uh, because we're not counting anything that we specifically read for the podcast we're only counting stuff that we read because we hoped it would be good and Given given all the stuff we do have trade for this podcast, we don't try to seek out other stuff that's bad. Yeah, so a lot of times it's like, oh, this book didn't live up to my expectations. Or, oh, I liked this book, but of the 20 books I read this year, I liked it a little less than the other 19. Yeah. Uh, another thing that sets this list apart a little bit from some of the other year-end wrap-up type lists that you see on every street corner this time of year. Uh, We don't only count things that were published in 2018. We're counting anything that we read this year. So sometimes that's going to include some great backlist stuff that we just got around to for whatever reason. And sort of related to that, a lot of times we try not to talk about uh, sequels or ongoing series that we've talked about in past years. Uh, So just because I feel like there's a lot of the same stuff to say when you're like, oh, book two of my favorite series was also my favorite book that I read this year, just like book one was my favorite book last year. Uh, So we like to try and tread new ground. And it also just helps us in like the narrowing down process to be able to rule out some. Yeah, I feel like that's especially relevant in this episode for graphic novels, because, I mean, The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl has been incredible, I think, for, I don't know, like four or five years now? Like, ever since it started, it's been incredible and it's so great. And now I'm just saying that for free, and I'm not cutting on my list. I just want you to know, off the record, Unbeatable Squirrel Girl is fucking great. Yes, I would also agree. I particularly, and I'll talk a little bit more about this when we get to comics, particularly had a problem this year because I didn't actually add any new ongoing series to my pull list. Uh, So that was fun. But we'll talk more about that later. I think first we're going to talk about adult books. Yeah. And I'm going to go first, and I... I'm cheating a little bit because I couldn't quite pin down to five. So I have five and a little bonus book. And real quick, my bonus book that I decided not to officially rank on my list. But I just want to tell you real quick that, first of all, if you're not already following Igeoma Alu Alu on Twitter, you absolutely should be doing that. And her book that, that came out this year called So You Want to Talk About Race is incredible. And I also feel like it is... I mean, of course, it's it's better written and more thoughtful than her Twitter, but I felt like, oh, it just, like, really uh, reinforced all the good stuff that I've been getting out of her thoughtful tweets daily. So this is just a recommendation for her Twitter feed and the book. And now I'm going to tell you about my fifth actual favorite book of the year, which is There, There by Tommy Orange, which is a inner 
connected series of short stories that um, all take place in and around Oakland, California, and they're all about um, various Native American characters who are reflecting on their own identities or in some cases learning more about their own own identities. And as the book goes on, you come to see how all these characters are going to connect at this powwow event that's going to take place in Oakland. And the, the structure is so cool. And the style, like the voices for each character are so strong and so distinct. And it was something that just, as each story ended, I was disappointed because I really liked that character that that story had been about. But then I'd go to the next story and like be equally compelled in the next character. I just loved it. I uh, definitely would recommend There, There by Tommy Orange. It sounds great. Um, so if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know that I tend to not read a ton of uh, books for grownups, whether they be fiction or nonfiction. Uh, so basically every book that I read makes it onto the list. (laughs) (laughs) I did actually, I think I read a couple extras this year, but I went through a period where I just read a lot of Nora Roberts books for fun. Our Lady Nora. Uh, Yes. We love Nora. Um, so my number five book is The Collector by Nora Roberts, (laughs) uh, which is, it's a very Nora Robertsy book. It is about... A young woman who is essentially a professional house sitter uh, to supplement her career as a young adult author. And she is house sitting uh, in this beautiful apartment in New York City and spends a lot of time on the balcony people watching. And one day she realizes that one of the couples that she's been watching through the window is having a fight and... Within moments, the fight has escalated and uh, both members of the couple are dead. So she is a witness to this crime and she goes to the police immediately. And the brother of the gentleman who is murdered is uh, a famous artist. And she and he bump into each other at the police station and realize that they both want answers to this crime that the police are kind of brushing off. So they decide to kind of stage their own investigation and of course fall madly in love in the process. And it was just, it was a fun, it was a good mystery. It was a fun, it was a good Nora book. I enjoyed it. It was a hundred million hours long on audio, but I barely noticed because it was so good. I love her. I do too. I also love my fourth favorite book of the year, which is Nobody Cares by Anne T. Donahue. First of all, I just really want everyone to look at the cover of it, which is just like a needlepoint with flowers that says Nobody Cares, because that's the title of the book. But it's just like very much my aesthetic, that cover, and I loved it. And it's very fitting for this book, which is an essay collection. Um, if you spend as much time on the internet as I do, you probably are familiar with Auntie Donahue's writing. She also is great on Twitter and publishes a lot of articles online. And this is an essay collection, and it's kind of some reflections on music and culture and just growing up and... You know, being a white woman who's about the same age as me, I just, I read a lot of these and was like, yeah, this is all extremely relatable content. Uh, I felt very seen by it, and I definitely would recommend it uh, if you, if you like this kind of thing, which I do. Sounds good. I will have to seek that one out. My number four book 
is The Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Lavelle. So in the kids and uh, teen episode, I talked a little bit about how a lot of the books that I read were found by going on to Overdrive, searching for horror and available now and seeing what covers looked good. Uh, And this was the result of that. It is not something that I think I normally would have picked up because I didn't initially, I guess I didn't read the blurb really closely. This is a story that is heavily influenced by H.P. Lovecraft's mythos, which I'm kind of hot and cold on Lovecraft. I understand that he did a lot for the genre, but he also is just like a garbage human being. Just really the worst. Mm. So I don't usually read a ton of Lovecraftian stuff. And also, just as a horror reader in general, I prefer kind of like supernatural ghosts and haunted things and stuff like that. But this was a really interesting take on it because it took place in like, I don't know, like 1920s time, the time that those sorts of stories normally take place. And the protagonist was a black gentleman living in New York City at the time. And it really delved into and interrogated a lot of the kind of explicit and less explicit racism in Lovecraft's work through kind of the story that it is telling about this young man who uh, shows up to this guy's house to kind of do him a favor and make a little bit of money and gets pulled into a really, really, really intense plot to end the world and bring about the Elder Gods. Uh, I really liked it. It was a good listen. Uh, It's quick. It's a novella, not a full novel. So I'm like kind of cheating a little bit, probably counting it as a full book. But you know, whatever. If you like those sort of things, or if like me, like you normally aren't super into Lovecraft, but are interested in hearing a take on it that kind of talks about why a lot of his stuff is shitty, give it a listen or read with your eyes if you're into that sort of thing. Shred it and put it in your nest. (laughs) (laughs) That joke only makes sense if you listen to our last episode, so shame on you if you're not laughing right now. (laughs) Just kidding, I totally get being behind on podcasts. No judgment. Anyway, my third favorite book of the year is Can't Help Myself by friend of the show Meredith Goldstein. And I just, I want to acknowledge she is friend of the show, uh, in, in real life friend, and, uh... I because of that I actually was nervous to read this book because I was like and I also read her YA book that came out this year but uh, I was nervous to read both because it's like oh like I really I really want Meredith to like me as a person but what if I don't like her book uh, and especially can't help myself it's a it's specifically her memoir and the the subtitle is something about like being the Boston Globe's love letters correspondent which she is and I like that column but I also was just feeling like I don't really need some dating advice right now like I don't know if I want to read this and I just don't feel like like I'm not super interested in dating in general right now and I just didn't feel like I needed that but I I started reading the book anyway and I loved it and it turns out it's it's not really about dating like it is about her journey with starting that column and in the Boston Globe and all the things that came through that. But it's also like about her family and her mom and, um, you know, content warning. Her mom does die of cancer in the course of the book as, as happened in the course of her actual life. Um, 
but it's it's just so funny and the the core of it is not as I as I feared that it might be. The core of it is not like you need to date someone to be a complete person. It's actually like you sh- you should work on yourself and find satisfaction that way and which is kind of a cliche and I'm I'm summing it up badly, but I really was heartened that that was the takeaway and I just and I I like married this tone so much and and I liked it a lot. So you should read Can't Help Myself and also the Love Letters column. Also, there's a whole chapter about like Twilight and vampires that I especially <laughs> liked very much. <laughs> I haven't read that one yet just because I don't read a lot of books with my eyes anymore and it was not available on audio from my library. But I did enjoy her YA novel, Chemistry Lessons, which I know Renata also read. Uh, and I, But I do understand, like, I feel the same way whenever I'm reading a book by a person I know as a person. I'm always kind of like, gosh, I hope that I don't hate this because <laughs> I'll feel awkward forever. But yeah, luckily, I mean, because then, then you just have to pretend like you didn't read it. Yes. But, but I did read it and I liked it the third most. So that's and, pretty good. <laughs> luckily, we're friends with a lot of very talented people. So I've never actually found myself in the situation where I had to lie to someone's face and tell them, oh, I haven't read your book. Yeah, so. we are we are not friends with Ernest Klein, thank no. God. No. <laughs> no, no, no. So, back to my favorites of the year. Uh, and I'm going to switch this one up. This is not how I had it written down, but the more I think about it, the more I think this is correct. Uh, my number three favorite book that I read this year was Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay. I think this is an older book of his... It is fucking right up my alley. When I tell you about it, you're going to be like, yeah, you read this book. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a kind of a story within a story within a story. It is the story of a girl named Marjorie who is 14 and starting to act very strangely. So her parents, uh, after trying several different psychiatrists and medical and mental paths to try and make her better, um, her father, who has recently had a Catholic conversion, goes to a priest for help, and the priest decides that she is possessed and suggests an exorcism. And also contacts a production company to turn it into a reality show. And the story of Marjorie's illness and uh, the things that happen next are told by her younger sister, uh, Mary, who is telling them to a writer who is going to be turning what actually happened into a book. Uh, So this is happening several years later when Mary, uh, who is like, I think, six when it happens or seven when it happens. And now she's in her 20s. So it is a really interesting look into why we like certain things about horror, what appeals to us about them and why, like, why we kind of need to interrogate what those things are. And a lot of that is kind of explicitly discussed in the text by an additional framing device of blog posts written by a woman who is revisiting the series for its 10th anniversary episode by episode and talking about what made it so popular. It was a really... And that that sort of device is the kind of thing that I feel like sometimes can feel really like hitting you over the head or sleazy, uh, but it really worked for me as a person who's into horror and the book overall really worked for me is very enjoyable 
a really interesting twist on like the exorcism possession plot with some really, really creepy details. Uh, so if you're into that sort of sh- uh, stuff, I would absolutely recommend it. And uh, you should listen to it or again, read with your eyes, whatever, put it in your nest, psychically get it down from our new alien overlords, whatever. Kate, as you foretold, that does sound like something that you would read. (laughs) (laughs) All right. My second favorite book of the year is Unsheltered by Barbara Kingsolver. I'm a a real devoted Kingsolver head. I guess that's probably what you call somebody who likes Barbara Kingsolver. Uh, This is her newest book, and, and I liked it a lot. It's extremely Barbara Kingsolver-y, and I know a lot of people don't like Barbara Kingsolver that much, and they say her books are kind of preachy, and they, like, they kind of are, but she is preaching to the choir of me, where I'm like, yeah, you're right, Barbara, like, say it. And so this is, um, it's told in split um, timelines, and in kind of the, the rough present day, I think it's actually 2016, there is a family like a multi-generational grandfather, parent, and child, and grandchild slash great-grandchild all living in this house that the mother, Willa, has inherited. And the house is fucked up, falling apart. They don't have any money to fix it up. And they're like, like the, the husband is a adjunct professor and you know just not making enough money and she is currently unemployed and um like had been a freelance journalist and just like can't get any work and she decides that if she can get the house registered as a historic landmark then they'll get some money to fix it up and then they can live in the house and not have it i mean it's like bad like there's tarps and they have to basically like camp in this house and then the past timeline is, and this part is is based in in real life. This planned uh, utopia, quote unquote, community called Vineland, or perhaps Vinland. I don't know. Uh, that it was a real place, and uh, the there's a real life lady naturalist named Mary Treat who was not given proper credit in her time because it was the 1800s and she was a lady but she was doing really interesting research and like corresponding with Charles Darwin and also maybe kind of having an affair with her neighbor or not quite an affair but something sort of perhaps untoward for the day and he was a married school teacher who wanted to try to teach Darwinism but the utopian overlords did not want him to teach Darwinism in the schools and so it's their story in the past and you get really invested in their story and then also invested in like ooh is this Mary Treat's house is it this guy's house like whose house is this um as in the in the present day Willa is you know, digging through these letters and trying to figure out which house is her house. And it's really like, I loved, I loved both of the storylines. I loved all the characters and it has some unexpected twists and it just has some really slightly preachy, but I felt like on point messages about just uh, conservation and the, the way that our economy is just totally fucked and our whole way of life is unsustainable and, But also, it's a little bit hopeful. It's not totally bleak. So if you are into all that kind of thing, if you already like Barbara Kingsolver's other books, Unsheltered is very much in that vein, and it really works for me, and and that's that. Sounds good. So my number two book that I read this year 
was I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. So I, I talked about this book a lot on uh, our Patreon newsletter plug. If you pledge $3 or more to patreon.com slash worst bestsellers, you get a monthly newsletter about whatever the fuck it is we want to talk about for a little while. And I think a thing that a lot of people know about me is that I'm very into murder adjacent things, be they fictional or non-fictional. Uh, but when it comes to non-fictional or true crime, I guess, as real people who don't just call it murder call it, uh, I tend to prefer a shorter form. Um, like my ideal true crime consumption is like the length of one to three podcast episodes or like a long read article or a series of long read articles. Generally, I can't do a whole book. It just, it, I get bogged down by like the details and either it's like too detailed or it's not detailed enough. Like it, it's hard for it to hold my attention consistently throughout because I am so easily distracted and bored by things. But this one really, I was really impressed. Michelle McNamara put a lot of autobiographical bits in it that really kind of kept my attention as some of the like more finicky details of the case started to be weighed down. I guess I didn't actually talk about what the book is. I just assume that everybody knows what it is. It is a book that was published uh, posthumously about the hunt for the Golden State Killer. Uh, Michelle McNamara died before the book was finished and her late husband or her, I'm sorry, her widow, <laughs> widower, and uh, her research assistants finished the book for her and it was published earlier this year, just like a couple months before they actually caught the Golden State Killer. It was wild. Weird tidbit, the documentary series based on the book started filming literally the day before they caught him. Very eerie. That's the secret? <laughs> Apparently. But it was just really well balanced between like details of actual crimes, details of the crime solving process, and details of Michelle's life as she found herself falling deeper and deeper into obsession with this particular case. And it never felt like scandalous or like it was glamorizing any of the events that the events that happened it, it just like hit my perfect level of involvement in a particular case and also like it was just it's very sad like I said the author passed away prior to it coming out so there's a lot of kind of editor's notes and interjections about how they proceeded with things after her death and how they went through all of the evidence that she had in her house that she had not time to go through yet and the files on her computer uh and the very end the last three sections of the book, one is the uh, law enforcement people and researchers that she worked with reflecting on what it was like to work with her and their respect for her as an investigator, a letter from her husband talking about just her in general and this book in particular and what, how her obsession with true crime like worked into their life together. And then with a now famous letter that she closed the book with, a letter to the Golden State Killer uh, that kind of circulated the internet after he was caught. So I cried all through the last, you know, and last 20 minutes, I just sobbed on the tea like a normal person. <laughs> but it was really like, even if you, if you like me, enjoy murders, but don't 
can't find yourself getting into true crime books, I would recommend this one. It was very good. Cool. I also heard a lot of librarians say that they really um, like the research details. There was a lot of research details. All right. Now it's time. It's time for me to reveal my favorite book of the year. And I have been waiting so long to say this because this is a book I read it on like January 2nd and I put it down as like, (laughs) ah, fuck, I'm pretty sure this is the best book I'm going to read all year. And then I I went to make my list and I sat and I thought with it and I was like, no, I was right. This is the best book I read all year. It is called They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. And it's by Hanif Abdurraqib, whose name I looked up how to pronounce and I'm pretty sure I did it right. And this is uh, an essay collection and it's it's cultural criticism, I guess you would say. Um, it's music. He is a music journalism journalist who does journalism, um, but he's also a poet. And it's it's just such a striking combination of digging into pop culture. I mean, there's I'm, I'm going to read to you a little bit from an essay about Carly Rae Jepsen. Um, he talks about like Fall Out Boy and Prince and just. Well, I mean, Prince is a different thing. But he talks about some maybe artists that you wouldn't think would get this level of beautiful scrutiny. And then there's also um, some essays about um, just his own personal life and different events. And I just loved it. And it's it's everyone is so beautifully written, even when it is an artist or a, a movie or whatever that I haven't seen or haven't heard or don't care about. I just wanted to see what he had to say about it. And I'm going to read to you a little bit, as as mentioned just a second ago, I'm going to read to you a little bit from the Carly Rae Jepsen essay, which is entitled Carly Rae Jepsen Loves You Back. Emotion has been critically adored. That's the name of her album, if you didn't know. Not just the concept of emotions. Emotion has been critically adored, despite disappointing sales totals. None of its songs has lit the Billboard charts on fire. It occurs to me that maybe no one actually wants a pop star who could be their friend. It erases the boundary of spectacle. That's what keeps so many of us drinking from the pop music well. The star who stops a room when they walk in, someone we can't access, in a life that looks nothing like ours. Emotion is too honest an album to pretend to be interested in spectacle. With her band behind her, Jepsen gets through three songs before speaking to the audience. When she finally speaks, it's a rushed sentence or two before she launches into another song. In a white blazer and a head of messy dark hair, she looks like a modern artist version of Pat Benatar, somehow both awkward and entirely at ease. Some musicians don't carry on much interaction with their audience because they have no interest in it. With Jepsen, you get the sense that she is just so excited to play these songs that nothing else matters. She is the person handing you a gift at Christmas, tearing into the wrapping paper before you can start to, with an eagerness that says, I made this gift for you, for all of you, and I want you to have it while there's still time to enjoy it. It is hard for me to imagine anyone wanting an actual friend this close to them, asking them to feel everything. From a metaphorical standpoint, one of the worst things we do is compare love to war. We do this in times of actual war without a thought about what it actually means. Mothers bury their children while a pop musician calls the bedroom a war zone and romance a field of battle, as if there is a graveyard for heartbreak alone. We've run out of ways to weaponize sadness, and so it becomes an actual weapon. 
A buffet of sad and bitter songs rains down from the pop charts for years, keeping us tethered to whatever sadness we could dress ourselves in when nothing else fit. Jepsen is trying to unlock the hard door, the one with all of the other feelings behind it. It's evident tonight as she bounces along the stage, smiling while pulling off her two dance moves to every note of every song, as she abandons her blazer for a sleeveless tee, and then a cape, only for a song, before throwing it to the side, as her voice trembles with nervous excitement before bringing out Dev Hines to play all that with her, both of them basking in the audience's voracious response. This is the difficult work, convincing a room full of people to set their sadness aside and for a night bring out whatever joy remains underneath. In a world where there is so much grief to be had, leading the people to water and letting them drink from your cupped hand. That's just some of it. That's just some of the beautiful things he has to say about Carly Rae Jepsen, who deserves beautiful things said about her. They were very nice things. All right, so I guess we're up to me. And interestingly enough, my favorite book from this year was also one that I read, like, maybe in late December last year, if not January. It was one of the first books that I read after putting together last year's list, uh, to the point where I actually checked last year's list to make sure that this wasn't on it. Um, and it is Meddling Kids by Edgar Quintero. Uh, this was a book that somebody recommended to me. I, it might have been at like an end of year list from last year. And it I was going to say, like- it might have been me, like, because I remember reading about this. I mean, like, this sounds like something Kate would like. But I haven't actually read it. I just read about it. It's entirely possible. And I put a hold on it. And it actually came through very quickly. And I listened to it. And it... it like, really stuck with me. There are bits of it that I remember, like, trying to explain to people when I was driving around, like, listening to it. Like, I would pause it and try to explain to people, like, why a particular part worked or didn't work for me. Um, and I, I do like books that make me want to talk about them. Uh, so this is a novel that is also actually kind of, like, vaguely Lovecraftian in places, which is interesting, because as I said, I don't read a ton of Lovecraft, but it is about essentially like the Scooby gang 20 years later. It is about a group of teens who, uh, a group of, of young adults who, when they were teens and tweens, got kind of famous in the small vacation town that they would summer in for solving mysteries and were in the paper a bunch of times. And, like, generally, like, just had, like, a great, fun childhood existence with each other during these summers until the summer of their last case. Something about it never feels right to them. And through just circumstances of life, they never end up coming back to the town for the summer the way they used to. And they kind of, over time, fall out of contact, more or less. Uh, and one of them... Uh, tragically dies the the freddy essentially like the young gorgeous one who was going to be a star uh, went off to hollywood and did not do super well for himself and they all kind of have this feeling that they are running away from something even though they don't want to admit it you know one of them has checked himself into a psychiatric hospital several times um, of his own volition because it's the only way that he can kind of settle himself another has dropped out the the velma of the group has like dropped out of college because she couldn't handle it, it it's just like 
everyone is kind of falling apart and they start to realize that what they need to do is go back to the town and figure out why the case never felt right to them. That this time, like, it, what the, when they found the guy in the mask, they kind of felt like maybe this time it wasn't a guy in the mask who was doing it. It's very funny. There's a lot of lampshade hanging on the sort of tropes of that kid-solving mystery genre. The characters are all very interesting and very complex. Uh, the dialogue is funny. The voice is really interesting and handled in a really interesting way. I It, it was just a very cool book. The way that it was done felt very fresh. It felt very unique to me. It felt like not necessarily something I'd read a lot of before. So yeah, I would recommend it. And I'm going to read a little bit from it now, from the very beginning as we meet two of the characters. Her own scream woke her up. It probably woke the whole block, really. She could still hear it resonating in the shoebox width of the room where while her racing heart geared down from sprint to marathon and senses swept her surroundings, checking up on reality. Of course this is your room, you dimwit. Look at how cold and smelly and dampened by bureaucratic rain pattering and faraway sirens it is. It had not been a bad scream, Carrie judged by the echoes of it. Not so much an eek, a mouse kind of shrill, as a strong, hard-boiled, holy mother of fuck. Tim's grave, silent stare seemed to confirm it. On really bad nights, she would wake up to the dog on the bed, barking away at the nightmares. Today, he was just sitting by, eyes level and fixed on her, an at-ease soldier expression on his face. She sat up in her unheated room, lit by the TV static sky, and touched the ice-cold window glass. Real sensations, all of them. She wondered how dreams managed to deceive her every time. They were so blatantly dreams in retrospect the fake stimuli so dim and shallow. She caressed Tim's head, his short fur, his wet nose, his whiskers. It was all too complex to be fabricated. How do you stay sane, Tim? She asked him. Tim whimpered, Oliver twisting his pale blue eyes. Carrie gave him a flirt acknowledging smirk and allowed him to hop inside the Spartan cast iron framed bed. She sat against the wall, flipped through the dozen books on the solitary shelf, opened one paperback, and retrieved the newspaper clip. The teen sleuths grinned back at her across 13 years from the sunny grayscale shores of Sleepy Lake, 1977. Do you still see them? asked the shrink. Nate, crash-landed on an armchair opposite, threw back a dehydrated stare. Your friends, I mean, Dr. Willett clarified. Are you still in contact with them? Nate took a drag of his cigarette, clutched between band-aid-wrapped fingers, stalling for the end of the session. My cousin Carrie calls from time to time. She went to study biology in New York, and she stayed there. I see her once or twice a year. Her mom still breeds winerammers back in Portland. Andy just left. At 16 or so, she threw a backpack over her shoulder, left home, and jumped on a train to, I don't know, find herself or whatever. She was always the complex one. I think she calls Carrie sometimes or sends her postcards. Peter was the golden boy. He stayed in California to finish high school. He planned to attend the Air Force Academy, followed Captain Al's steps, and then at 16 he got discovered by a casting agent. 
He did movies, became a big star. He snorted, put out the cigarette, and dropped the tone of his voice. Then he overdosed on pills and died in a hotel room in L.A. In another state, Kerry stroked the pulp-quality paper on which the Pennaquick Telegraph was printed, its pores the jagged edges of the page. Real sensations, like this cold room and the coarse army blanket and Tim's ears brushing her thighs. This did happen. This piece of paper says it. Teen sleuths unmask Sleepy Lake Monster. Uncover criminal plot. Haunting debunked. We did it. Do you miss them? Dr. Willett prompted. Nate gazed at the window. It was March, but still winter. That's what the last 13 years had been. A very long winter. Nah, he said. We were kids. Childhood friends don't last forever. I mean, who holds on to the past for that long? So, yeah, it's very good. The way that it plays with language is really interesting, too, which I was reminded when I got to the Oliver twisting his eyes section. There's a lot in the language itself that is kind of a wink and a nudge to the overwrought way in which these stories were written and in which these stories were told and things like Scooby-Doo. Yeah, is is good. You should read it. All right. Well, let's talk about something less good, which is our worst our worst favorite, aka least favorite, whatever. Our least favorite books of the year for adults. My least favorite book for adults of the year is You're on a Plane by Parker Posey, which is her memoir. And I'll say up front that I'm not a Parker Posey super fan. I was like a Parker Posey medium fan. I, of course, loved her iconic performance in Josie and the Pussycats, which she talks about for like one paragraph. Insufficient. Um, And of course, I love uh, the Christopher Guest movies, and she talks about that more but honestly, not enough. I mean, this book is is fine, but uh, it's very unedited. And I think partly that was her intent. Like her gimmick is like, I'm sitting next to you on an airplane. We're just chatting. And so there's all of these tangents in it that could be charming and funny. But after a while, it's like, girl, like calm down. Because a lot of them are just like, oh, and when I was in Toronto, I went to this yoga studio. And when I was in Quebec, I went here. And it's just like literally a lot of very specific recommendations for like yoga studios and pottery studios and weird places to random cities and like i didn't really want your travel guide parker posey it's too much of those and then also she goes out of her way to talk about what great experiences she had working with both woody allen and louis ck it was like this book came out in 2018 and i mean she doesn't at all address any of the negative things that anyone that people have said about Woody Allen and Louis C.K. And it's like, I mean, this had to have been some kind of intentional choice on your part, Parker, that you wanted to go and to bat for these guys. And like, why though? I don't know. That's all. Not not stoked about Parker Posey's memoir. Sorry to say. But waiting for Goffman, still a classic. Nothing can take that away from me. <laughs> Uh, So my least favorite book or least best book that I read this year was a book that uh, Renata and I read for one of our book clubs for, I guess, only book club we're in together. And it's a classic and it's a book that many people love and many people are probably about to be horrified as I say this, Uh, but it was The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin. 
This is a book that as I was reading it, it was one of those things where I could be like, wow, objectively, I understand why this book is very important and how groundbreaking it must have been in the 1970s. As a person reading the book, I want it to die. (laughs) It just, it was so much. It was just so much. Especially the first half, which... You know, and I will say, and people will say to you if you ever decide to read this book, like, oh, like, once you get through the first half, like, the second half really picks up and it's a much better story. The first half is mostly the political setup for the things that happen in the second half, which is true. But you still have to read the first half. And it still is just fucking a lot. And if you are into, like, fantasy shit, I'm sure that you're like, yeah, like, a lot. That's what I like to hear. I am not in a fantasy shit, so it was just a lot. In fact, I didn't even finish it by the time we had to do the book club. We had to uh, only talk about the first half at book club because so many people could not finish it in time because it's just so much. It's not even a long book. It's just a lot. It's my cousin's favorite book. She loves Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, But even when I explained to her, like, God, I wish I loved this book, but I didn't. She was like, yeah, no, I would never tell someone to read that as their first Ursula K. Le Guin book. Uh, But I did. And I had regrets. (laughs) Yeah, I, as Kate mentioned, it was for our book club. So I read it too. I liked it more than Kate did, but it was a real struggle. And And it also felt to me like if I had read this when it came out in like, what, like 1967 or something, I feel like it would have been mind-blowing, and I still think in some ways it's very progressive, but in other ways, it is it is simply a lot of paragraphs that are just like, would it blow your fucking mind if I told you gender was a social construct? And reading it now in 2018, I'm like, oh no, I heard that. I heard that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that's not like her it. fault. Like, it just is. It just is what it is to read it now in this year, I feel like. Yeah, it is. It is, does a ton of really interesting things with gender and the myths of masculinity and, I mean, the myths of gender gender in general. But, you know, like Renata said, a lot of it, which was probably groundbreaking then, which was groundbreaking then, now it's like, oh, like, I read a book with a non-binary protagonist, like, last week, and it was fine. Like, it was a book with kissing, not a book with ice. A lot of ice, for sure. A lot of ice. Sure. Uh, yeah, so, you know... Different strokes for different folks. Amen. <laughs> Let's talk about comics. Let's do that. All right. Like we mentioned, we're not saying books that uh, are ongoing series that we previously had picked, which uh, it, you if you should go back and look at them because some of those books are still ongoing that we liked last year and years before, and they're still very good. They're still very good. But we got some fresh new comics for you. Say, in particular, Marvel is continuing to put out a lot of really good books about young women. I was going to say teenage girls, but then I was like, one of them's a tween, I think, and one of them's in college. Young women in general. There's some good titles out there that we have talked about before that you should check out. Just keep on reading them. Okay, my fifth favorite series of the year and I'm, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but not so embarrassed that I'm not going to say it. And it's Doctor Strange. And I, I sort of got into Doctor Strange a little bit ironically because I 
I did not like his movie, and I think the character is goofy, but I did like him. I liked him in small doses, like in Infinity War, where he has like seven lines and half of them are making fun of Tony Stark. And I was like, this is my preferred quantity of Doctor Strange. Or in Thor Ragnarok, where he steals every scene that he's in, which is like two at the very beginning. Yes, yes. When he just makes Loki fall forever. And I was like, yeah, this is all I want to happen to Loki. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that, Steven. By the way, my coworker and I have like a giant cardboard Stephen Strange in our office who we refer to by first name as Stephen and just really take him to task for not pulling his full share around the office, which isn't really fair because he's cardboard, but also he never does shit, Stephen. Anyway, the Doctor Strange comics, they're, they're pretty good. They really lean into how weird the character is. And also, and I did not know this, and I'm furious that she's not in the movie, uh, he is friends with like a public librarian named Zelma, and she's great, and I love her. And uh, I think maybe she was created... I don't, don't at me, Doctor Strange bros. I think she was maybe created in kind of the relaunch by Jason Aaron. But I specifically am going to shout out Johnny Cates' run on the Doctor Strange comics because um, they're even weirder and fun and... <sighs> And that's all I want from Doctor Strange is for him to be like weird and fun and hang out with a librarian. And I think they're a little bit less uh, culturally appropriative than that whole last Doctor Strange movie was. And I think probably then the characters like actual origins are and like the old school Doctor Strange comics, which I haven't read. I'm not going to and you can't make me. But the first volume Donny Cates run on Doctor Strange is obviously written by Donny Cates. It has art by Gabriel Hernandez Walta and Nico Nico Henry Schon. It's like pretty fun, you guys. It sounds fun. I probably still won't read it. But I I, I respect it. that life choice. Have you read uh Doctor Strange season one? I didn't I love it. Okay. I haven't read it, but I love Greg Pak and I love the season one. I know, Series. I know, and I think Greg Pak was doing the best he could with what he had, but I think the problem is Doctor Strange's origin story is gross, and he had to just be like, I think he was limited, and yeah. I think these other comics can move past that like pretty gross origin story and do more interesting things. So, like, no disrespect to Greg Pak, all the disrespect to Doctor Strange's origin story. Yes, Greg Pak's amazing. We love him. This book isn't a gro- about... Greg Pak, though. My number five book was uh, Peshmina by Nidhi Chinani. Uh, that was ri- uh, writing and art and everything. This is a middle grade memoirish, memoir adjacent graphic novel. It's not, not a memoir, it's adjacent, I guess, from what I've read about the author and why this book was written. But it is about a young Indian-American girl who's raised by a single mother with close family friends who she refers to as her aunt and uncle, who are also of Indian descent in America, obviously, because I said American. And she really kind of longs to connect to her culture. She does have, like, strong connections through her family and through food and through clothing and spirituality and things like that, but she really wants to know more about her mother's life uh, back in India, what India was like, what her family in India is like, 
Uh, but her mother is very tight-lipped about it and won't tell her anything. And uh, one day, when she is going through uh, some boxes in a closet in the hallway, she finds a pashmina scarf that her mother brought from India. And when she puts it on, she finds herself transported to India with some animal guides who kind of show her the sights and show her what quote-unquote real India is like. And as she fights more with her mother and feels ostracized when her aunt and uncle announce that her aunt is pregnant, uh, she starts to go more and more into this fantasy world of India and ask her mother again and again why she can't visit. And it kind of culminates in her going on a visit to India and learning a lot more about what brought her mother to America and that India is not the kind of fantasy world that she was seeing through her travels with this scarf, but it is much more nuanced and complicated than that. It's a really beautiful story. Color in particular plays a really big part in it, and it is done really masterfully, and it brings a whole other kind of element to the telling of the story, which I really liked. There were parts of it, I was reading it largely on my phone, and there were parts of it that, like, when I got home, I was getting my hair cut, I, like, pulled my computer open and opened the book in the Kindle app on my computer just so that I could see some of the images bigger. But yeah, it was really great. I would definitely recommend it. Check it out. Right. My fourth favorite book of the year, what, for comics, whatever, was uh, Rogue and Gambit by Kelly Thompson with art by Per Perez. Per, whatever. By P. Perez. And, uh, I've mentioned before in the podcast, I'm real trash for Gambit. I'm <laughs> just real trash for that good trash boy. <laughs> and uh, so is Kelly Thompson. So this works out great for all of us. Uh, this is just funny and charming. It's a, it was a limited series. So it, it wrapped up very tidily. And if you, if you like Rogue and Gambit, and I know those characters are, like, not everybody's favorite, so if you don't like them, just move along. If you do like them, come sit with me and Kelly Thompson, and we'll just have a really good time. Uh, there is also a follow-up series to this. Spoilers ends with them getting engaged, and then she's writing a new ongoing called Mr. and Mrs. X, which is about them as a married couple, which I'm excited to read, but I haven't read it yet. So maybe that'll be in my 2019 favorites. Don't know. That's all I have to say about it. All right. So my number four comic of the year was Bingo Love, which was written by T. Franklin with art by Jen St. Onge and colors by Joy San. This was a book that was a Kickstarter that I backed because it sounded so good and it absolutely lived up to expectations. And I'm not the only one who thinks so, thought so, because it like busted through its Kickstarter goals and sold a bajillion copies and then was picked up by Image uh, for reprints. And uh, there's already a sequel in the works coming out, I think, this year. Or, well, 2019. So yeah, when you're listening to it, it'll be this year. It is a story that takes place um, essentially over three different time frames, kind of. Uh, it starts in the 1960s when Hazel Johnson uh, meets... Mary McRae at a bingo hall where they're both there with their grandparents um, and Mari is new to town and 
she and Hazel just like feels deep in her soul that she wants to be this woman's best friend, that this girl's best friend, that she just, for whatever reason, like she just really wants to be around her all the time. Isn't that weird? And as their friendship grows over the next few years, they realize that they are in love. And unfortunately, as I said, it's like the 1960s and their grandparents catch them kissing and uh, Mari is sent away and Hazel is immediately set up with like a nice boy and they get married and they start families and the entire time like they're kind of longing for each other and their marriages are like not great um and in the present in like 2015 or 2016 at a bingo bingo hall on Mother's Day they meet each other again and immediately, like, all of their feelings are back, and now they have to figure out how to navigate their lives as grandmothers who are reunited with their long-lost loves and want to live their true lives that they've been pressing down for all of these years, even though they know that it's going to hurt the families they already have. It has a happy-ish ending. It's a little bittersweet at the very end, just because we're talking about characters who are up there in age, and aging happens, and it's sad. There are some memory loss. I'll give you some trigger warnings for memory loss-related things. I know that can be touchy for people. But it really, it's just, it's a beautiful story. Oh, I don't, I didn't even fucking mention at the beginning, uh, both Hazel and Mari are black, which, you know, kind of adds to the sort of, wow, it's the 1960s and everything sucks for gay people tensions. But yeah, it is just, it is a beautiful story about these two women, like, rediscovering themselves and discovering each other. And I love it. And I think it's on Hoopla. So check it out. Nice. Uh, my third favorite graphic novel of the year is Lost Soul Be at Peace by Maggie Thrash. This is sort of a graphic memoir, but also fictionalized to be a little bit more of not exactly a ghost story, but it's probably easier to call it a ghost story. And this is sort of a follow-up to a previous memoir, graphic memoir that she wrote called Honor Girl, which is about her coming of age and coming to terms with her sexuality as a queer person while at summer camp that I liked a lot as well. But this um, this is a kind of different tone and a different vibe and it's 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 really beautifully done and it's more about her relationship with her father and sort of coming of age and learning a little bit more about the particular baggage that her father maybe is bringing to the table as a father and person in the world and and the art is is beautiful and i like it i like it a lot this is my profound take on lost soul be at peace by maggie thrash i like it a lot yeah i want to read that one i loved honor girl it was so good so that's definitely on my list yeah but on the list of books that i have already read in my number three spot is heavy vinyl which is a limited series uh, that was written by Carly Ustin with art by Nina Vacuiva. Sure. Sure. Names. This is a comic that takes place in New Jersey in the late 1990s. 
uh, and follows a group of girls who all work at a record store called Vinyl Mayhem. I mean, record store, I mean, I mean, record store in the loosest. This is kind of pre hipsters love records again, you know, CDs and shit. And uh, the main girl, Chris, has just started working there partially, but not entirely because she's trying to find herself and she thinks she might be able to find herself through music. And also there's this really cute girl named Maggie who works there already. And when they're getting ready for a an in-store performance, they discover that the lead singer of the band has mysteriously vanished. And Chris stumbles upon the fact that all of her co-workers are actually in a girl gang. And they're like a, a group of like teen girl vigilantes. And working in the store is kind of your initiation into the group and she has to decide if she wants to be a part of this or if she even can be a part of this while also nursing her crush on Maggie and trying to find this missing singer. Uh, It's really cute. I think it's like either five or six issues long. So it's fast, but just like fun and sweet and cool. And yeah, that does sound cool and fun. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, My second favorite graphic novel of the year is another memoir, slightly fictionalized, uh, called Be Prepared, written and drawn by Vera Broskal, who, well, now I'm blanking, but she had another graphic novel that I liked. Oh, fucking, um, I love that book. I can't remember what it's called. All right. Hold, please, while we Google this before we die. Anya's Ghost. Anya's Ghost, yes. But this is different from Anya's Ghost. Um, This is Be Prepared, and it's based on her childhood uh, growing up in the U.S., but in a Russian Orthodox family with, um, you know, they were on the poorer side of things, and she didn't quite fit in at school. And it, it starts off with this really funny compare and contrast with a popular girl's birthday party where they get, like, stuffed crust pizza, and they all have their American Girl dolls, which the... The birthday girl has one, and they're they're all kind of like um like slight parodies, and hers is named Complicity, and it's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> but Vera's family can't afford an American Girl doll, and her birthday party is like not cool, and all the kids pretend to be sick so they can go home early, and it's a it's a bummer. And then all the other kids go off to summer camp for the summer, but they can't afford to go to summer camp. But then Vera finds out that the Orthodox church runs a camp that they can go to for pretty cheap because the point, you know, they want to preserve Russian culture and such. So she's like, yes, a a way to go to camp and then I'll fit in and have all these camp stories. And she hates it. She hates the camp so much. And it does sound like a really hardcore camp. Uh, you know, the full kind of backwoods outhouse situation and very, very roughing it style camp. And she's in a bunk with some older girls who are mean to her. And and I, and I also like how it's it's sort of messy and real where if this were fiction, like absolutely what would happen is there's there's another younger girl who she meets and realizes that that younger girl is being bullied and they kind of have some stuff in common. And you would think like, oh, they'll be friends now, but they're not really, and she spends the whole summer still trying to impress the mean girls, because, like, that's what she did in real life, and that's how it goes sometimes. Um, but I just, it's it's funny and moving, and, and the art is very 
charming and very evocative of this particular summer camp experience that she had. And I personally always loved summer camp and I love any kind of summer camp stories. And I love this one, even though that camp clearly sucked and was a bad experience for her. Uh, So check out Be Prepared by Vera Brosgall. Whatever your feelings on summer camp are, it's got something for you. Uh, My number two comic of the year was The Prince and the Dressmaker, which was written and illustrated by Jen Wang. This is such a cute book, guys. (laughs) So it follows a young seamstress named Frances, who uh, kind of gets herself thrust into the spotlight when she is making a dress for a young girl to wear to a ball to try and woo the prince. And sort of mistakenly sort of on purpose like it's sort of framed that like she didn't know any better but she still probably would have done what she did even if she did know better uh instead of asking the girl's mother what the dress should look like she asks the girl what the dress should look like and the girl says that she wants to look like satan's uh god i wish i could remember how she put it but like satan's mistress so she makes her this like really intense over the top like dominatrixy dress that is a scandal in the proper, you know, court or whatever. And she's fired by her boss just as a uh, gentleman shows up looking for her, asking her to come on the staff of the royalty that he, the princess that he is representing, because the princess was so impressed by her dress that she wants to commission Francis to be her full-time seamstress. And when Frances goes with the gentleman to the rooms where the princess is, she accidentally makes the discovery, even though uh, he's trying to hide it, that the princess is not a princess at all, but rather Prince Sebastian, the guy that all of these girls are in town to try and woo. And uh, Prince Sebastian just, he likes to feel beautiful, and he likes to try on dresses, and after she makes some really outrageous dresses for him, he wears one out and wins a fashion contest and starts going by the name Lady Crystalia. And just the two of them are like having like the best fucking time getting all fancy and going to all of these crazy events. Uh, Meanwhile, during the day, Sebastian is so tired that he can't really like keep up with his royal duties, including trying to pick a future wife. Uh, So it's a lot of, like, you know, balancing your identity. And Frances is having a lot of issues because everyone loves her fashion and tries to, like, mimic all the dresses she makes, but no one knows who she is because they all know that Frances is the seamstress and best friend of Prince Sebastian. So if it was revealed that she was also the seamstress and best friend of Lady Crystalia, like, people would start asking questions But it it has a happy ending, a happy ending where everybody gets to express themselves the way they want and be what they want to be and who they want to be with. And it's just, it's very good. It's very cute. The art is amazing. The art of these dresses is incredible. And just like a really sweet story about accepting yourself and accepting the people around you and being a good friend and being a good person. And yeah. I I also really like this one and I really like the dresses. I do want to share real quick something I was just reading about today, a controversy I was 
not aware of and and neither was Jen Wang, uh, which is that in the book, he is the prince of Belgium, which given the time period means that the king of Belgium was Leopold II, who apparently, I, I didn't really know about this, uh, and again, neither did Jen, uh, was a real monster who was responsible for the death of millions of Congolese citizens because the Congo was like a colony of Belgium and he was a real dick about it. And so apparently in future printings, they're changing that and it's just not going to be set in Belgium anymore because it's not really supposed to be that guy. So I'm just mentioning that because what the fuck, Belgium? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's a lot. You think it's just chocolate and Flemish painters and then they've got King Leopold II popping (laughs) up in there, which is not a good transition for me to talk about my favorite graphic novel of the year, but I'm going to... Just Do it press anyway. on. Just gonna press on. My favorite book of the year for graphic novels was Hey Kiddo, which is a memoir written and drawn by Jarrett Krasowska. I also looked up how to pronounce that name and I feel okay about it. This is like I said, it's a memoir. Uh, so it's about his his childhood growing up being raised by his grandparents because his father wasn't really in the picture and his mother was a heroin addict who was kind of in and out of jail and just you know a heroin addict i don't know what you want me to say um and so it's it's about him learning gradually as he's a child that like oh his family is not quite like some of the other families and and they're sort of trying to protect him from various pieces of information for as long as they can. But of course he grows up and he learns and he learns what's going on and he loves his grandparents. They're great pseudo parent figures, but at the same time it's, it's hard for them because they're older and they're dealing with a lot of other stuff and maybe they weren't the best parents to Jarrett's mother, but they're, they're trying and it's, he, he treats every figure in his life as he's writing this with just such compassion for for what they were going through. You really get the sense that, like, even his dad, who probably is the worst dirtbag, even then he's he's forgiving or, like, at least willing to, to move on. And the art is beautiful. It's this muted, limited palette. He it's mostly black and white, and then the only color that he used is this kind of like mustardy orange color, which in the end notes he said is um, his grandfather used to wear a pocket square that color, and so it's for him, and it just works really well. And it's also this really compelling exploration of the way that he used art to to get through all of this and to cope with his childhood and teen years and the way art eventually sort of was his ticket to into college and how great that was for him. And it's just really beautiful. And I'd recommend it to just about anybody. And like, we will have panel, a few panels posted so you can take a look and see the art. And I'm going to read you a little bit of an excerpt, even though it's kind of dumb and hard to read comics out loud, but we're a podcast. So we're just going to try. And I'm reading a little bit from near the beginning when his grandfather, when Jared's grandfather is teaching him how to drive. Jared's a little nervous as most teens learning how to drive are. So his grandfather says, it's okay. You know why I'm teaching you how to drive in a cemetery, right? And they both say in unison, because everyone is already dead. Yeah, you've mentioned that, Jared says. And then in thought bubble, I can't wait to get my license. 
Won't need to worry about getting a ride from anyone. Grandpa has trouble seeing at night with all of the headlights coming at him, so he's never able to drive me anywhere. Grandma only drives when she absolutely has to. So, like, doctor's appointments and that sort of stuff. Other than that, she only ever drives down the street to Andolia's for groceries. Lynn and Holly used to drive me around whenever they could, but they're so busy with their own families now. Those are his aunts. I don't want to bother them. And my mother? I stopped counting on her a long time ago. Aw, baby Jarrett. Anyway, so that's just a little bit, but I really encourage you to go to worstbestsellers.com and look at the panels posted because the art is so beautiful. That one's been on my list, but it's not, I haven't read it yet, so it can't be my favorite. And instead, my favorite comic that I read this year is a comic you are fucking sick of hearing us talk about. Like, so sick. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) And that is The Adventure Zone, Here There Be Gerblins, which is written by Clint McElroy, with Justin McElroy, Travis McElroy, and Griffin McElroy, with art by Carrie Peach. Probably you're on the internet, so probably you know who the McElroys are. Probably you know what The Adventure Zone is. Probably you've already read this book. But if, by chance, you are not, and have not read any of our newsletters or listened to our podcast before. Um, The Adventure Zone is a podcast done by the McElroys, the three brothers who do My Brother, My Brother and Me and their father, Clint, where they play various role-playing games. And the first arc, they play Dungeons and Dragons. And this is a graphic novelization of that first arc, the first storyline in the first arc first campaign, I should say. The first arc of the first campaign. Whatever. Fucking it's it's a story from when they played Dungeons and Dragons. And the Griffin is the dungeon master and Justin plays Taco the wizard who is uh, at this point in the story a very self-centered, sarcastic, over-the-top fallen celebrity chef who is a (laughs) wizard um, and an elf. Uh, Travis plays Magnus Burnsides, who is a protection fighter with a tragic backstory that one day he will reveal, although they won't let him do it at this point in the narrative. (laughs) And Travis is very good at rolling dice. (laughs) Who knew that was a talent you could have? (laughs) And Clint plays Merle Highchurch, the dwarven cleric, who is a follower of the god Pan and... Uh, is not probably really as good at healing people as a cleric should be, but goddamn it, he can cast a good zone of truth. <laughs> and they are on, in this particular story, they are on a trip to help one of Merle's cousins on a mysterious errand that he won't tell them about, with the promise that it will be the last job any of them will ever have to take, and by the, because by the end they will be super rich. But right away, they discover that Merle's cousin and his bodyguard, Barry Blue Jeans, have been ambushed on the road to the city where they're going and they need to be rescued and they start down the path that will lead them through uh, several more journeys where they will meet all sorts of other characters and this is a really good podcast and it's a really good comic and it's dumb as shit but it'll make you cry (laughs) a lot Um, but in particular this is like it's hard to imagine a podcast being adapted into a graphic novel as well as this one is because it is like a a auditory medium and a lot of what makes the podcast funny is the jokes that the brothers tell out of character but they did a really amazing job uh, adapting it and 
uh, kind of fitting those jokes into the mouths of the characters, of inserting Griffin as the DM into the narrative where it's appropriate. And the art is just fucking amazing. The expressions on these characters. I'm going to read, I think, a different part than I initially wanted to, just because the part I wanted to post, maybe I'll we'll post this too, is entirely visual, so it doesn't really lend itself to being read out loud. <laughs> But just, like, the expressions on their faces, the use of color in particular scenes, it it really kind of evokes between these characters who barely know each other the same sort of familiarity that you feel while listening to these people who conversely have known each other their entire lives play a story out for you uh, over a podcast. So the bit that I am going to read, which, as I said, is not the initial part I had picked out or the travel montage, even though it's very funny, is after they have uh, started on their journey to try and find what has happened to Merle's cousin by finding this hidden mind that has been in their family for many generations, and they are traveling on their way to get it. So the first page is... Griffin, the DM, is reading out from the corner to our three adventurers. Now, what you see here is the heart of the mining operation. Here, they were excavating the magical ore they were turning into powerful weapons. And the next panel, uh, he is continuing to say to them, picture, if you will, a whole shitload of orcs rushing through these very chambers, heads spinning with tales of incredible wealth and bladders bursting with pee because they had been drinking a lot and there aren't a lot of rest stops on the road from Haverdale. In the next panel, Magna says, It seems to me that this is the heart of a mining operation where they were excavating the magical ore for weapons. I just feel it in my bones. And Taco says, We all heard him too, dude. And then the next panel, they won't look at each other. And they start walking and Taco says, So, how does everybody think the adventure is going? (laughs) And Magnus says, B, maybe solid B minus? And Merle says, welcome, everybody. And the next panel, while waving his hands through the air, says, to tunnel talk. And the next page, Merle says, so are you guys more dog people or... And Taco says, okay, no more talking and sharing. I'm sorry I started this whole thing. And he marches ahead and leaves the other two walking behind him. And Magnus says... Have I ever told you the key to carving the perfect wooden duck? The secret is small, controlled strokes. And Taco, pulling his hat down over his head in frustration, says, Oh God, how much longer are we going to be in this cave? At the top of the next page, Griffin is ripping pages out of a calendar and says, Four days later. And Magnus says, Four days and it brought us closer as friends. And Taco, who is very frustrated, says, No, it didn't. And Magnus says, four days that brought us to the brink of being a powerful fighting unit. And Merle says, no, it didn't. And Magnus says, four days that brought us a broader understanding of the very world around us. And Griffin says, oh, it most definitely didn't. (laughs) And Magnus says, all right, party poopers, where did it bring us? And Taco says, to another big goddamned cave. And we'll end there. Because I could probably just fucking read this whole thing out loud, but I'm not going to do that. It's a good book. You should read it. It's, yeah, it's delightful. All right. Something else that's fucking delightful is the CW's teen drama, Riverdale. (laughs) (laughs) I think I mentioned before that I could talk about Riverdale for hours. The show. 
And as you probably know, Riverdale, the show, is based on the Archie comics, but now in a weird Ouroboros of media, there's comics specifically based on Riverdale, as opposed to just the original Archie comics, or even the rebooted hot Archie comics. It's it's its whole own thing. And so I picked up the first volume of the Riverdale comics, uh, which are written by Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, with art by Aletha Martinez and Joe Eisma. And um, it was, like, fine, but it didn't have the full, like, commitment to high camp weirdness of the show. But it also wasn't, like, that good in a non-campy way. It was just sort of, like, mediocre fan fiction that didn't really scratch my particular Riverdale itch. So I, I would recommend the show. I wouldn't really recommend these comics. But I... <laughs> I think I mentioned before, I think I put Jughead on my list last year, maybe. Some of the rebooted Hot Archie comics are pretty good, but not the Riverdale tie-in comics based on the show that's based on the comics. You got it? Great. Excellent. Um, So my least favorite comic that I read this year, it's actually, it's a comic that we won in trivia. Um, me and Renata and uh, I think our friend KL and maybe someone else went to play trivia at Trident Books Alexander Hamilton Trivia. In fact, as in kind of promotion of this comic, which is called Alexander Hamilton, written by Jonathan Hennessy with art by Justin Greenwood. It was fine. I mean, you know, it was it was fine. The art was good. But you know, it, it didn't I feel like this is such an interesting story. Obviously, like, Hamilton's a hot... Alexander Hamilton is a hot button right now because of the musical Hamilton still. And I think that the musical Hamilton has shown that, like, Hamilton's life is fucking ridiculous and makes a very good story. And I just did not find the narrative of the... The way that the narrative was presented in this comic to be particularly compelling. You know, it was it was fine, but it didn't teach me anything I didn't already know about... Alexander Hamilton and it was not that fun to read. The end. Cool. Alright, we did it. That's we our did. favorite adult and graphic novels and least favorite of 2018. We also did a year of podcasting. Good for us. Yeah. Well, we did four years of podcasting. Well, I know, but we, we completed, <laughs> successfully completed another year. We've hit yeah. a benchmark of yeah. completing a year. Of not even, you know, whatever. Fucking, it's 2019 now! Confetti! Yay! Audio confetti. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, I've totally been to parties before and I totally know what confetti sounds like. Don't worry about it. (laughs) You go to a lot of confetti parties? (laughs) Yeah, they all all sound like that. My Foley work is impeccable. Uh, uh, that's also what my nest made of shredded books sounds like, so it does get confusing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about you. I was just shaking my nest a little bit for that fully work. <sighs> yeah, I mean, that's just that's just smart. Okay. It's time for us to stop talking for a while, because I think we maybe have, have lost it. So... Thank you all for listening to us for this whole four years slash one year of podcasting. We we appreciate it, and we hope you have 
learned about some good books this year that maybe you want to read instead of all the bad books that we've been reading so you don't have to. Yes. Some of these you do have to. It's your assignment. Going to come to your house and make you. Maybe. that's Well, that's a Patreon tier. (laughs) (laughs) For just $100 a month, we'll come to your house and make you read a book. Some people are into that. (laughs) And that's how we got into financial domination. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. That's not a real Patreon tier. Don't at us about it. But if you did want to at us about it, we are on Twitter at Worst Bestseller with no S because the S is crafted into our nest and it's really, it's a load-bearing S and we can't take it out now. Uh, We are also on Facebook where we're facebook.com slash Worst Bestsellers spelled the usual way. We're also WorstBestsellers.com where you can find links to all sorts of things. And for this episode, you can find those sweet panels from our favorite books that we told you about. And you should look at them. Our favorite comic books, rather. We don't have panels from the text-based books because that's not that exciting, honestly. No. Oh, it's my turn. Yeah, you tell us some things. <laughs> no, you didn't tell us about Goodreads. There were a lot of things you didn't tell us yet. All right, we also have a Goodreads group. You can find it at worstbestsellers.com and click on the Goodreads link. Okay, I will. <laughs> you can also subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And if you do subscribe to us, please take a moment to rate and review us. When you rate and review us, it pushes us up a little bit in the charts and makes it easier for people to find us. If you don't rate and review us, then, I don't know, we'll make you part of our nest. Did I say that last time? I (laughs) I might have said that last time. If you don't rate and review us, we will come to your house and make you read books, but only if you don't want that. Yes. (laughs) But unlike Renata, if you do want to pay us to do that, add us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can also... Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash worstbestsellers. Uh, if you could not pick that up from Context Clues, Patreon is a site where you pledge a small or large monthly recurring donation, and that money goes to us to help keep the show running, keep the metaphorical podcast lights on, pay our editor, Becca, and in exchange, you have all sorts of perks, uh, like $3 and up patrons who get our monthly newsletter. Uh, there's a $20 and up level where we will send you a curated package filled with books and candy uh, and all sorts of other things in between. We also have a merch shop that you can find by going to worstbestsellers.com and clicking on store uh, where we have all sorts of different merchandise with our logo, with the Rock Paper Snicked logo, and many other things from our podcast that you can wear on your body. Hooray. Uh, if you if you just want me personally, if you want to take a look at my personal nest, you can find me at, at Renata Snacks on Twitter. If you want to follow me personally, you can follow me at 14across on most social media sites. Uh, uh, Twitter is still a question mark for me, but, you know, we'll see what happens. It's 2019. Maybe I'll be less depressed in a mess this year. Probably not, but who knows? Anything can happen. It's true. It's 2019. The world is filled with promise. Well, and you know what? You know, okay, the next book that we're going to read is How the Secret Changed My Life by Rhonda Byrne. So I feel like probably after you read that, uh, it will change your life. Good. I'm I'm holding on to that hope. I'm sending it out into the universe. Thank you. Hopefully in four to eight weeks, I'll get a return. Yep. You know how it works. Uh, (laughs) 
So we back in two weeks with uh, that book about the a book about the secret, which is a book that we previously read, and this is going to be an exciting crossover episode that we can't wait for for us to record, and we can't wait for you to listen to it because it's going to be a great time. That's the energy I'm putting out into the universe, and it will be received. Hooray! <laughs> okay, thanks everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.